Father, thank you for the time I had a way to teach and to fellowship with others in the body of Christ. But thank you, Father, just as much for bringing me back safely and for caring for the needs of the body here at Oak Hill in my absence and every day. Thank you, Father, for the continued proclamation of your word in this place, whether by me or by anyone else, Father, that that Oak Hill has always and we pray always will have an emphasis on the teaching of your word. For it is by the word of God, Father, that we have faith and by the word of God that we are washed and made clean. It's by the word of God, Father, that we come to know of our Lord and Savior. And it's by the word of God, Father, that we may be sanctified for the work of ministry as you appoint to each to each of us. And nothing comes, Father, except by your word and all things will pass except your word. So may we take it now, Father, as it was intended, as truth from the lips of God, spoken by a man, but not authored by that man. And, Father, I pray that whatever may be said today would be by your spirit so that we would hear it as from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I like to do, if I've been gone for a little while, let's take a moment to remember where we've come and how we're progressing at this point in the beginning of chapter 34. We're studying Jacob. We've watched him now return to the land and settle near a place called Shechem. This is a place that his father and his grandfather occupied sporadically. And as he's arrived now back into the land, this completed the first act of his story. And you could you could divide his life into basically three acts. So we've begun now the second part of his storyline. The first one revolved around his relationship with Esau, largely. It talked about how the conflict began over the birthright, how he deceived, Jacob deceived his father to try to obtain what God had promised him. That led to this division in the family where he had to flee from Esau. God using Jacob's sin in order to divide the two brothers. Interestingly, similar to the way God divided the seed of promise and the seed of flesh with Isaac and Ishmael. And as he moved from the land to Laban's home, the the story changed a little. It became the struggle of Jacob with Laban in the land. But still, all that was a consequence of his contention with Esau. It came to a conclusion. The first act came to a conclusion when he comes back into the land and reconciles with Esau. And now Esau is no longer that threat that forced him into exile. And the the Lord allowed Jacob to reenter the land. Now, the key messages in that first act were God was patient. God was faithful. God was working to grow Jacob in his faith and in his dependence on God. But Jacob, while at the while God's doing all that, Jacob is self-centered. Jacob is deceptive still at times. And that led to that really iconic moment at the end of the first act where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And through that encounter, God brings a new understanding to Jacob, an improved understanding of God's power and his authority. But we don't want to get the wrong impression. The, the scriptures have a really nice way of balancing the growth of an individual and the work of God in their life with the reality that they still maintain a sin nature and they still have problems. So although Jacob came to this new understanding, it didn't fix Jacob. Nothing short of the glorification of his body and our glorification for that matter, nothing short of that deals with sin entirely. So though he has been brought into faith and that has put him in a place of justification, he is still struggling with the sin of everyday life. So the story will now show us some of that sin. We've seen this already in the book of Genesis. Abraham receives a word from the Lord and the next moment he's down in Egypt lying about his wife. Noah receives a word from the Lord, goes through the flood. Next moment he's drunk and naked in his tent. The point of scripture is to illustrate God at work through the sin of men and ultimately 
to absolve the sin of men through faith. So the first act comes to conclusion. Jacob settled in the land again. The next part of his life story begins. So the second part still centers on Jacob's weaknesses. But the focus, as I said, is going to shift slightly. Now, instead of learning about Jacob's failings, we're going to start to understand the consequences of Jacob's sin. The consequences. And in particular, we're going to have to understand that his sin of deception, his lifelong pattern of deception, that mated with his impatience, which caused him to to deceive, to get what he wanted. And all of that wrapped up in self-centeredness, that he might obtain what he wanted. All of that has combined to yield a family of sons who share in those same weaknesses. So now you have the sin of Jacob times 12. Certainly not every son of Jacob is equally sinful in every regard. There's variations within the family, of course. But as a family unit, they reflect on the sin of their father. And that's no small matter in the history of Israel. So the consequences of Jacob's sin begin to play out in the sin of his children. That reminds us, by the way, that sometimes the consequences of our sin wait for many years to bloom and often come in a surprising way. So let's look at chapter 34 with that background, beginning what I call act two of Jacob's life. Verse one, we start. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young girl for a wife. In chapter 30 of Genesis, 30, verse 21, we learn that one of the children of Leah was this daughter, Dinah. And in the Bible, women are rarely mentioned in the genealogies of Scripture, in the genealogies of the Bible. Now, the fact that that's true does not suggest that women are less valued by God. It just reflects both the biblical and the cultural emphasis on men determining the family identities through generations. The story of Genesis in the Bible is ultimately a story about the Messiah, right? About where and when he comes to save men from the sin that began the story. And the line of Messiah is traced through the seed of men, according to Scripture. And therefore, it is ultimately a focus of the story where that seed promise moves from generation to generation to generation. So following it through the line of men is the key focus of the author. Ironically, that line ends with the seed of woman with a virgin birth as foretold through Genesis 3. But the purpose of the writers of Scripture is to note the men. The only time they'll note women in most cases is when the women have some meaningful impact on the coming of the Messiah. So really, God is treating women and men equally in that regard. Whoever has some impact in God's economy for the arrival of Messiah will be noted and their role in that coming will be noted. It just so happens that it's mostly men. Ruth would be an example of that, by the way. And so is Dinah. This story has meaningful impact on how the Messiah arrives, through which line the Messiah arrives. So Genesis 34 tells us this. Let's look at the chapter beginning in verse one. We're told that Dinah went to visit the daughters of the land. Now, the land is Canaan, of course. This is where Jacob has returned. And the occupants of the land are, unsurprisingly, the ungodly Canaanite people. That's who she's visiting. You know, Jacob, just like his fathers before him, has chosen to settle outside the cities of Canaan because he understood 
that though God had promised this land to him, the fulfillment of that promise would not come in his earthly lifetime. That for as long as he walked the earth as a man in this first life, he would not see that fulfillment. And so he took no attempt to claim it. He made no attempt to to suggest that he saw the land in his age as the land that fulfilled God's promises. Hebrews 11 tells us that he waited for a promise that was not fulfilled and will not be fulfilled until their resurrected lifetimes. So in the course of his earthly life, he lived as a wanderer. He refrained from owning any significant part of the land or making any claim on it. But he has not been effective, Jacob has not been effective in teaching that viewpoint to his children, or so it would seem. Because here you see evidence of that weakness. You see Dinah now going out to make friends with the daughters of the land. Now, she's a young girl. By most accounts, she's somewhere between 14 and 16 years old. And you can certainly sympathize with the desire of a young teenager, young female in this case, seeking friendship. Seeking acquaintances, particularly in the local community they may live next to. So she goes out to this nearby town of Shechem looking for someone to be friends with. Now, we haven't heard much about Shechem up to this point in Scripture, except in Genesis 12 when Abraham first came into the land. And when we read about it then, we learned that he came and settled in this place of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, from history's point of view, are a dreadful people. They are incredibly sinful people, even by some of the worst standards of the day, even by a Sodom and Gomorrah standard. They were wicked idolaters who did things like child sacrifice. They practiced ritual prostitution and sodomy. They showed little regard for human life and virtue. No regard for the most part to law other than the law they made for themselves. So clearly, this is the kind of culture that a man like Jacob should have warned his children to avoid at all costs. We would do the same, wouldn't we? If we lived in a culture, well, we do live in a culture like that. So it is not to say we have no relationship with them. Paul himself in First Corinthians makes clear that we are not supposed to stay away from the world. We're supposed to influence that world for the sake of the gospel. But there's a difference between that and becoming part of the world, of making friendship with it, of finding some common ground or affinity for it. And this seems to be the intent of the woman here. The, the Dinah is looking for some way to find interest in and connection to this culture. Because of that behavior, one of the sons of the king, a man named Shechem, the prince, we're told, of the city, decides to take notice of Dinah and takes her by force. And in the way scripture renders it very politely, he rapes her. And there were few offenses in the ancient East more egregious than rape. Now, we still see it as a terrible thing, and justifiably so, but in the age that we're seeing here in Scripture, it was even a degree worse if that were possible. Because not only did you have the violence against the woman, which is at the core of it, of course, but you also had the defiling of a woman, for she would no longer be considered suitable for marriage, for she had already been with a man. You have the fact that her honor was stolen, and you have shame now brought on the family name because of all of this. And in many regards, the shame... The dishonoring was worse than the actual physical offense, at least in the minds of the culture. So after raping this girl, the prince, we're told here, keeps her. And the sense of this in Hebrew is that he holds her by force. That's the language that's used in Hebrew. So this is really kidnapping. So he's raped her. He's keeping her from going home. He's holding her prisoner. And then in this very weird twist now, he becomes attracted to her and wants to make her his wife. And this is the kind of sick fleshly culture that pervaded Canaanite life. 
Now, the prince couldn't keep her forever because if he tried to do that, eventually Jacob and the clan that he oversees would have the authority to take arms up against the city of Shechem or to appeal to the king, make some kind of protest. This wasn't going to end easily if the prince just tried to do this without making something official, without trying to find some appropriate way to call her his wife. So he seeks that outcome. He goes to his dad and he says, I want to make this woman my wife. And there's a hubris there that comes easily, most easily, for the rich and powerful. Not all rich and powerful people, certainly. And it's not limited to rich and powerful people, but it's common among rich and powerful people. It's the problem that comes with someone who has unchecked power, unchecked power in some realm. And in that situation, their sinful flesh has absolutely no natural constraint. There's nothing to stop them. You'll see this in the Arabian world among Arabian emirates. Here are men who have unlimited access to wealth and absolute sovereign power within their world, and they can have anything and anyone they want. And that kind of limitless power, it emboldens the flesh to want for everything the mind can imagine. And the scripture says that the wickedness of the heart knows no limits. So if you can imagine the wickedness of the heart set free from any governor, how far can it go? That's the situation you see here in a microcosm. A boy who can take a woman by force, keep her kidnapped, and then have the audacity to say, Dad, well, I'm going to make her my wife. Let's just go talk to the family and tell them we're going to keep her. Like she's a puppy. That's the mentality that, that Jacob is dealing with here. Remember that next time you might wish for great power or wealth. I've always thought that if God should grant my desire for great power or wealth, it might be a sign that he wants to curse me rather than to bless me. Now the word reaches Jacob in verse 5. Jacob eventually hears about this. We don't know how, but it's probably not that hard to imagine ways in which the word makes its way back. So verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he, the prince, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. Well, so Jacob hears about the prince. Here's about what's happened. Here's about his daughter. Here's she's been defiled. The word there for defiled in Hebrew is unclean. That's, again, a reflection of the fact that Dinah would no longer be suitable for marriage at this point. And at that time, when Jacob hears this, the sons of Jacob were out in the field tending the flock. And so it says here that Jacob now remains silent initially. Now, what the Bible means by silent in this moment is that Jacob made no decision concerning how to respond. Jacob is withholding action. That's what it really means here. He wanted to have the counsel of his sons. That would have been customary. You remember we've seen already in times past where when a woman was going to be betrothed to a potential suitor, who often carried the negotiation for the family of the bride? It would be the, the brother of the woman. Laban, for example, was the one negotiating for Rebekah to marry Isaac. So it was very common for the sons to take a leading role in the family on behalf of the father to handle family business affairs. That's what Jacob has done here. Jacob has said, I'm going to wait for all the sons to be present. And then as a council of, of men, we will make a decision. Now, the brothers hear of the sister's plight while they're in the field. They all rush back in and they're incensed. Well, there's no surprise there. 
I can't imagine any of us wouldn't feel something similar if we had heard a story about our own sister or brother, if it were somehow reversed. I mean, we would feel the same kind of concern. We would have the same anger, perhaps. But there's something interesting in the verse that covers them. In verse 7, they mention that this is a disgraceful thing in Israel. Did you catch that? This is the first time in the Bible that the name of Jacob, now Israel, is applied to the family. They've started calling themselves Israel. They started calling themselves by their dad's new name. This is the first time you see the nation now being named in Scripture. This is a very important moment. It helps explain what comes next. You now have a family that has taken on a national identity under the name of their father. And that national identity is partly to explain for the strong reaction you're going to see come from these boys. I mean, it was bad enough that their sister was defiled. But on top of that, they see this as an act of war. The rule of law in Canaan was by city. Every city was its own nation. Every city was its own state. They had their own king. They had their own authority over whatever land they claimed. And so within Canaan, you have all these little pockets of authority. And we've already seen that, for example, when Abimelech, king of Gerar, dealt with Abraham. Well, Gerar was just a little region, a little city. Now you see the king of Shechem, Hamor. Israel, though, was nomadic. This family has wandered throughout the land of Canaan, bumped up against these cities from time to time, but they've remained separate from any of these city states. And now they've taken on a stance within the land by virtue of their size and their wealth that is at least as powerful as any of these city states. So they are a force to be reckoned with wandering within this larger land that has its own pocket of forces. And one of those cities has taken offense against this nation of Israel. So it would be like a border conflict taking place between two nations today. What do you do about that? Well, you have a range of options, right? In any situation like this, you can go to war or you can negotiate a peace, but you have to deal with it. Or you put at risk your very survival in the land. That's what's facing this family. So the brothers are intent on defending their daughter's honor and on defending their family name and on defending their sovereignty within the place that they live. To do anything other than this would be a sign of weakness and a risk for greater conflict in the future. So that's the setup. Now let's look at verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. So here's dad, the king, Hamor, doing as his son asked. He approaches Jacob with a marriage negotiation. And the hubris here continues. You notice he approaches this conversation with absolutely no indication that there's anything amiss. No acknowledgement of the kidnapping, no acknowledgement of the rape, no suggestion that he owes anything for what has happened to Jacob's daughter. Just another day in the life of the king of Shechem. Hey, I'd like to come and talk to you about marriage. That took a lot of chutzpah, they might have said, right? That's not something that's going unnoticed with Jacob and with his brothers. But you notice Hamar does not directly acknowledge the rape. He doesn't directly acknowledge the defiling. But 
he does make a tacit admission of guilt. And you had to look carefully to see it. In fact, your English may have actually hidden it because there's a little tweak in the, in the English interpretation that really isn't very good. He gives these unusually generous terms for the potential marriage. First, he waives the right for a dowry that normally accompanied the bride. Normally, there was some payment from the father of the bride to the son on behalf of the bride. You remember you saw this with Laban when he gave his daughters to Jacob. What did he give with each of them? A servant, which later became two more wives for Jacob. But that was effectively the dowry. This guy says in verse 12, look at the first half of verse 12. My English reads wrong. Yours may read wrongly as well. It should read in Hebrew, ask me never so much. Mine has been translated, ask me ever so much. I'm not sure why they chose that, but it's negative. Ask me never so much, meaning I won't ask you for a dowry. You do not have to pay me a dowry. Then he offers to pay whatever the bride price would be. So in the normal arrangement, the father of the bride gave a dowry to the bride. The father of the groom paid a price for the bride. And we've seen this this example in past. Here he's saying, I'm so willing to, to make this favorable to you. You don't have to give me a dowry and I'll give you anything you ask for the bride. There's a problem with that. They just increased Dinah's shame with that offer by not following the normal process and expecting a dowry and negotiating in earnest. Remember in the East, a strong negotiation is a sign of respect. If you just roll over, they take that as a sign of lack of respect. So they want some contending. They want you to bargain. They expect that as a part of showing respect for the other side. This guy came in and says, she's not worth the dowry and I don't care to negotiate. You can just have whatever you want. He's added shame to her. He's lowered her value and dishonored her further. He proposes first, I want your daughter to marry my son. And then secondly, he goes a step further. He says, in fact, let's just intermarry in general. This isn't a one time thing. I'm actually suggesting a treaty of merger that your family and my city state would become one, that this would be the beginning of that relationship. Now, why does the king make that offer? Why does he go so far? Well, besides trying to win Dinah for his son, the king sees an economic advantage in this deal. I mean, Jacob's family has tremendous wealth. We've heard this over and over again through the story of Genesis. He's amassed a lot of wealth and he's not attached to any city state. So in a sense, he's a free agent. And if there's a city state in the land that could bring him into their borders, make them a part of that nation state. Well, it's understood that the king here is going to remain the king. And as such, he begins to own everything or at least have control over everything. So Jacob's family wealth would be a great boost to his city, both in terms of its stature and its power, its economic wealth. So it's an obviously good arrangement for him. What he's assuming is that in the course of this negotiation, Jacob will feel the implicit threat that were he not to agree, he would have an enemy in Shechem. This agreement, this potential agreement, would be a serious departure from God's plan for Israel. We can see that going in, right? I mean, the land we know one day will belong to Israel, but they were not going to obtain it through compromise with the local culture. Remember Abraham, after he saved Sodom from the kings of the north, came in and destroyed it, and he brings all the people back. The king of Sodom comes out to greet him and says, I'll pay you for these people. And Abraham says, I'll I'll take nothing of yours. I don't want anyone to ever say you made me rich. I look to God for my inheritance. That was the standard that Abraham set. And it's been followed ever since. 
Now Jacob finds himself in this interesting potential compromise where he could go into an agreement, into a compromise with cursed Canaanites. And I say that because you remember from Genesis chapter nine that Canaan is cursed by God. These people are to be dispossessed of the land in a future day. God has already set that as the expectation. There was simply no way Jacob could accept this offer. No way whatsoever. So now Jacob has a decision. What's he going to do? Well, on the one hand, he has an opportunity to put the whole episode behind him through this compromise. He could name a high price for Dinah. That would have given him a good bit of wealth if he wanted it. It might have helped to restore her honor a little bit. Because you remember that the higher the price is for the bride, the more it values the bride. You could have played that a little bit. I don't think it would have really done much to solve the shame problem, but it might have been a small step anyway. And then, of course, if he agrees to the compromise, he gets to move into this nice city. He gets to start earning his wages in the city, perhaps buying land. Seems like a really comfortable lifestyle. But on the other hand, a Canaanite nation is committed to sin and ungodliness, which God is committed to judge and curse. And you become a part of that. And his daughter has been shamed and expects the family to come to her defense and he would be selling her out. And then it would corrupt the family in the long term because intermarriage would mean this ungodly influence would now be bound to every boy in the family. Eventually, there would be no nation of Israel. It would only be Canaanite. We've talked in the past here about the reality of what it means to marry the world in whatever context you place it in. The world does not become godly because they marry believers. Believers become ungodly because they marry unbelievers. That's the way it works. Only by the grace of God does one change the heart, not by sheer force of personal influence. If only it did work that way. As was customary, what does Jacob do? He leaves it to his sons. And in verse 13, we hear the son's idea. Verse 13, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit because... He had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and we become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. So in verse 13, Moses writes that Jacob's sons intended to deceive. They intended to trick Hamor and in the process, revenge their sister's treatment. While their desire to defend their sister and their family honor is justified, everything they do after this point is wrong. So it starts with an idea that is not unbiblical defending honor, preserving godliness in the family. There's a good principle here. Rescuing Dinah, that's a good principle. But everything they do after this point is wrong. Keep that in mind as we study through this. Notice where they begin. They take a page right out of Dad's playbook. They deceive. The first thing that comes to their mind in the face of this challenge is they need to deceive in order to solve their problem. You can bet these sons live and think just like their dad does, because Jacob's penchant for relying on deception to solve his problems is reflected here in his boys thinking to do the same thing. It's likely that Jacob doesn't even realize that they intend to deceive Hamor at this point. By the way, Moses writes this and by some of the response you'll see later at the end of this chapter, I don't think Jacob sees this coming. I think Jacob believes what they're saying. And that tells us something about Jacob. 
because he appears at least silent, if not satisfied with the possibility of his sons marrying Dinah off and for other sons to marry other daughters of this family. He doesn't seem to object to the idea whatsoever. Later in the story, he's very upset at their deception and of what comes from it. So I have to believe if he had thought this was deception now, he would have raised his concern here. But he doesn't. This is a sad commentary on Jacob as a man, that he was willing to overlook his daughter in this time of need, potentially, and even to stand by and permit this kind of compromise with the Canaanites. It shows you that this is a man who still has a long way to go. Jacob has raised a family that is marked by his own nature and shares in his weaknesses of character. And there is a common lie we all succumb to, I think, at times, that our sin is either going to hurt no one or only us. And when our sin nature feeds us this lie, it gives encouragement to some degree for us to pursue our sinful desires. Because after all, if it doesn't have to hurt anyone if they don't know it, then really where's the harm in it? You could have made that argument perhaps about Jacob and his sin, about his tendency to lie and deceive and to scheme rather than to wait and trust on the Lord at times. The reality, though, is that sin often has far-reaching and long-lasting consequences well beyond our ability to foresee, well beyond our capacity to understand in the moment. We always, as a general rule, we always underestimate the consequences of our sin in our life and in others' lives. How many people are walking around with incurable diseases brought about by sinful choices at an earlier stage in life and in that earlier stage, had no thought whatsoever to the possibility that that might happen to them. How many of us are walking around with other physical ailments that came from bad choices in our lifestyle or in other things we did? How many of us are suffering through financial ramifications? Or most often, emotional or family disturbances that come because of somebody who knew somebody who said something who did something. Probably the simplest example is drunk driving. One additional drink at one wrong moment leads to someone getting killed on the highway from a drunk driver. Jacob could never have imagined how his tendency to deceive would become an influence on how his sons think. And now what comes through the rest of this chapter is a horrific episode brought about by a character weakness that has been incubated in this family through years of a father who thinks this way. This is a sobering but challenging reminder to parents. No one's going to be a sinless parent. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking at all times about the simplest things we say and do having an influence on the people in our lives around us and that we have to be mindful of that because of this very reality, the consequences of sin. It's appropriate. In fact, I think it's instructive that this chapter makes zero mention of God. It's one of the very few chapters of Genesis in which God is never mentioned Not even intimated, not even suggested. He is absent from the discourse in this chapter. Clearly, his presence is not a factor in this family's decision making. The Lord has promised to bless and keep this family. He ensured Jacob of an inheritance. He's shown himself in the past to be ready and willing to protect Jacob in the face of greater enemies. And despite all of that, neither Jacob nor his sons, even give a moment's thought to what the Lord might do for them under these circumstances. To even ask him. It is certainly the case that God is present in the story, though he's unmentioned. Despite the family's unwillingness to acknowledge him, he's here, that's for sure, and he's working. He's working to turn the sin of this family to good for the purposes that he has in keeping with his covenants. So 
All that's about to happen in this chapter, all that is said and all that eventually transpires plays into God's plan and eventually impacts where the Messiah comes from as a result of these activities. And in that result, God's purpose is met, which is one of the most amazing things about understanding Scripture, that something like this can be turned to good by a God who foresees it and arguably intends it, at least in the sense that he intends the outcomes to fit his plan. And yet we can't understand that going in. As a result of this deception, God is going to bring justice against those who pursue this improper act, specifically against two of the sons of Jacob. And in the process, he's going to vindicate Dinah's honor. He's going to win her freedom. And he's going to use these circumstances to ensure Jacob's future protection from any harm in the land of Canaan. He gains all of that out of this situation, but does it through these most unfortunate sinful circumstances. How often do you think Israel, the nation, read these verses in their history and took some encouragement from the fact that they could see the collective unfaithfulness of this family being being met with a faithfulness by God who could both hold the guilty accountable while at the same time vindicating his name and preserving the nation for the sake of his faithfulness to his covenants. When you turn to times in Israel's history like the Babylonian captivity or some of the worst of the days under the, the bad kings, and the, the few godly of the remnant might have looked at the pages of Genesis and found this story and said to themselves, well, if Jacob and his sons could do this kind of thing and find God still faithful, then maybe there's still hope for our nation. It had to have been a source of some encouragement. Some of us are better than Jacob, and I think maybe some of us are worse, at least at times. But your children mirror your weaknesses. My children mirror my strengths a little, and I see that from time to time, but they mirror my weaknesses even better. I'm not sure if that's just natural or just them, or maybe my weaknesses are more obvious. Just as chapter 34 shows us that God is absent, we, I think, go through periods in our life when God is absent as well. Not in reality, and certainly not in power, but in our thinking and in our behavior. We put him aside for a little while. He's not found in our thoughts. He's not found in our actions. He fades into the background. But he doesn't disappear. He continues to work. So let's remember as we end today, the sin of our everyday life has a reach that extends beyond our capacity to appreciate it. The safest approach is to minimize the sin in our life because we don't want to inherit any unintended consequences that might follow. Secondly, remember that our daily choices to sin will accumulate over time a wealth of consequences you can't even imagine or anticipate. Consequences to our health and our emotional well-being and our relationships and our reputation. God will turn things to good. But the best way is to avoid the need for the turning in the first place. Next week when we come back, let's finish this story. We'll understand the full consequences and we'll look forward into how it affected the coming of the Messiah. Go with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Our sin is ever-present, but your grace is much greater. And I ask, Father, that as we think about this story and as we move out of the day and into the week to come, that you would convict us at every moment of the sin that encumbers all of us to some extent. And couple that, Father, with an ever-present reminder of grace. Don't let the enemy take our sin and create in our minds an excuse to wallow in self-pity or to think we are unworthy or unable to serve. Certainly we are unworthy. Certainly we are unable in our own power. But by grace, Father, we have been made capable and we have been made justified 
And the enemy cannot steal that from us. Let it be a source, Father, of conviction so that we would act in a godly and pleasing way. Let us be mindful of those who watch our every move and thought and action and and word and seek, Father, to be a good witness for their sake as well as our own. And let Oak Hill, Father, be a place that encourages others to do the same. Bring us back next week with others, if it be your will. Continue to teach us through your word and guide us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.